Blog Talk Radio. functions, dirty talk, or anything I might say might offend you. This might not be the show for you, but <laughs> that's the way I roll. Desperate House Witches is brought to you by the one, the only, the incredible wicked one herself, the amazing Dorothy Morrison. Check out www.wickedwitchstudios.com. And if you need those goods shipped overseas, check out theangrycauldron.com. Dorothy is currently uh, selling her amazing 2021 House blessing ornaments. You can hang them everywhere, anywhere. I always buy at least two. This time I think I, I bought eight because you have to buy balls and pears. That's how I roll. Anyway, we've got a real special treat today. Deborah Lip is joining us to talk to us about the Ultimate James Bond fan book. So I'm really excited because I don't know shit except for the ones that I like. Hey, Deborah. Hi. Hi, thank you for doing this. Thank you for doing this because I know you've had me on. We've discussed my books about Wicca and about tarot and about I don't even know what. But, you know, this is outside your wheelhouse, so I appreciate this. This is this will well, be fun. I'm really grateful. I'm, I'm very grateful because, you know, we as people are more than just what we do as, as witches or pagans. I think it's nice to sometimes get out of the comfort zone and talk about the fact that you do other things. So I'm really grateful. Now, you know that I am no expert. I don't know a whole hell of a lot about James Bond. I just know that I got taken to every James Bond picture as a child because that's what my old man was into. And I know you're going to tease me. can tell already, but I love live and let die. Go ahead. <laughs> uh, well, okay. It's it's not a crazy thing for a witch to love because it is the only James Bond movie with an occult uh, connection. So, and and it's, it's got some interesting it's got some interesting occult stuff in it, you know. Because actually, Jeffrey Holder, who everybody, um, the late great Jeffrey Holder, who everybody remembers from those Seven um, Up commercials in the seventies. Yes. The cola nut yep. and the uncola nut. Everybody remembers him. Okay. He was the the villain, one of the villains. And um, Jeffrey yep. Holder was most famous as a as a dancer and a choreographer. And so mm-hmm. he built the character of Baron Samedi around the voodoo god Baron Samedi. And um, actually, here's some fun trivia. Um, because it was an occult character, convinced the producers that that meant that the character really couldn't die. So he's one of the <laughs> only villains who survives the end of the movie in all the James Bond movies. Um, the, he was, 
So, so there's that, and then there's the fact that Jane Seymour played a tarot reader, and there's the fact yeah. that um, the what was originally called the Tarot of the Witches, which is more popularly referred to by the artist, the Fergus Hall Tarot, was designed um, on commission for Live and Let Die. And there's an, a detailed article on the tarot in that movie um, in the yep. Ultimate James Bond fan book. See, I could tie it back in. <laughs> um, so I did – actually, I never, I never did what I intended to do with the article. I intended to write the article twice. I intended to write a detailed blow-by-blow um, analysis of the tarot in Live and Let Die twice, once explaining what the tarot was for James, for a James Bond magazine, which I did, and then rewrite it, uh-huh. um, explaining, you know, taking out some of the beginner what is tarot stuff and adding in beginner what is James Bond stuff for a tarot audience. Yeah. I never actually did that. I could, though. <laughs> I it could. sounds I interesting. I did interesting research into that article, including corresponding with Fergus Hall's daughter um, wow. and, and corresponding with people on um, the old eclectic.net forums where some of the great tarot experts were hanging out. But they don't, those forums don't exist anymore, although they're all archived. But getting some interesting, I mean, like if you're into collectible tarot decks, getting some interesting and obscure um, facts about the Fergus Hall tarot and how it was used in the movie. It was actually yeah. changed. In the movie, it was a fully illustrated deck, and then when it was with illustrated minors, and then when it was actually released for commercial purchase, it, it, the minors are now pip cards. Interesting. So had I you ever considered the, <laughs> Wow. Had you but had you considered actually doing a James Bond tarot deck? Um, I think I mean I'm not an artist, so I've never created a tarot deck at all. I think that it would be a fun project for somebody and for all I know there might be one out there. There are some movie tie in. Um, you know, there's a Game of Thrones tarot. You could do it. Yeah. You know, I yeah, have. I guess it could be done. <laughs> one of one of my uh, one of my coven mates is um, is as passionate a James Bond fan as I am, and also a you know really great tarot reader. Um, and um, you know, so so I'm sure that he and I could sit down and come up with some great ideas about that. You know, uh, Pussy Galore is the Queen of Swords or something. Yeah, obviously, obviously. (laughs) Oh my gosh, that would be so cool. I think you should do it. (laughs) But the thing about that live and let die, and I have to say, there are, there are, it is one of my least favorite James Bond movies. You know, those were the good things. The part that gets me is the extraordinary racism. It is a black exploitation movie starring the white English James Bond wandering through Harlem and New Orleans being beset upon by scary black people. It's it's not it's not exactly a woke movie. 
Well, you know, at the point that it came out, I was a kid in summer camp, and it, all I knew about it was that it was action. And I had a great time. It was a great night at the at the drive-in. And, you know, I guess if I go back and rewatch it um, with a different set of eyes being as old as I am now, I probably would be pretty embarrassed about it. But for when it came out, to me it was just, you know, it was dangerous. It reminded me of my old man, the the better parts of that relationship. So I guess that's probably why I have a fond memory about it, because it was the one thing, it was one of the few times that my father actually smiled. So. Aw, aw. And yeah. and honestly, yeah. one of the things that that is is definitely true about James Bond movies is is that they tend to be family affairs. That people have family connections to them. That they're multi generational. Mm-hmm. That um, you know that my father took me to my first James Bond movies, and that I took my daughter to her first James Bond movies, and and that it mm-hmm. is this sort of. Um, multi-generational. I mean, they've been around since 1962. And the books yeah. have been around since, since the 50s. So so yeah. there's this, um, you know, shared generational experience in these movies that, that, that is just unbeatable. And, and that's yeah. a really wonderful thing about them. They're, they're reliable, right? Even the, even yeah. even the the lesser quality movies or the movies that you complain about or the movies that you question why they made that decision, they're still reliably good entertainment and they are a sort of a shared cultural experience. And I think that that is something so joyful and wonderful about the movies. And then I wrote the book in part because I became so engrossed and fascinated by the by the trivia. Yeah. Um, by the the breadth of um, movie knowledge that's contained in these, one of the things in in my book is a list of all the Oscar winners that have appeared in James Bond movies or that have worked on James Bond movies. For instance, yeah. John Barry, multiple Oscar winner. I believe he won for uh, you, you know the film composer who won, I, I know for Out of Africa, I think maybe also for The Lion in Winter. He composed, yeah. he composed the soundtrack to Somewhere in Time, which is one of my spouse's favorite soundtracks of all time and was played actually um, at our wedding uh-huh. because it's so romantic, the love theme from Somewhere in Time. John Barry did, I think, 15 James Bond movies. So, you know, you could arguably write a history of modern pop music based upon James Bond's theme songs. It's, it's just a, a, you know, because Louis Armstrong did one. Um, The Beatles were insulted, were used as an insult in Goldfinger and then Paul McCartney comes around and does live and let die. So you could you could yeah. talk about the trajectory of of modern music just using James Bond. There's a lot there's a lot that um, that is in there that is just so culturally rich, and they're just good, fun, action adventure movies. 
And and by yeah. the way, you know, if you hear purring, that's just that's yeah. just how we roll. I know. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's just she just jumped me again. I, so, so you know, I I wanted to ask you if it's a stupid question. Now, of course, you don't have to answer this unless you want to. Is asking you who your favorite Bond is or was a stupid question? Well, it's a question that everybody asks, and it's a and the more you love the Bond movies, the harder it becomes to answer. Because, yeah. like, you you kind of have to say Sean Connery. He he created the role. He was extraordinary in the role. He was not, and and I'm sorry about saying this about the recently dead, not a great human being by all accounts. Right. Um, But a great, great performer, and every subsequent actor owes him a huge debt. Right. So, So you kind of have to say Sean Connery because there's no James Bond without Sean Connery. The, you know, the right. wrong actor in this role and those movies would not have been a hit. Um, and then, you know, once the first movie isn't a hit, then that's it, right? But, yeah, well, usually, but on the yeah. other hand, I mean, I was not a big fan of George Lazenby in, in, who did one right. movie. Um, yeah. I was not a big fan of Roger Moore, although Roger Moore, by the way, was a wonderful human being. Um, very active in... UNICEF, um, in yeah. part because traveling the world doing James Bond movies, he saw incredible poverty and felt, you know, keenly felt the distance between the, the luxury in which he was traveling and, and what he saw. And that, that just speaks so well of him as a human. But I was not right. a huge fan of his interpretation of the character. Um, yeah. So, but then we... Um, I think Timothy Dalton, who did two movies, I loved. And I know some people didn't, but I did. (laughs) And I think Pierce Brosnan's movie, you know, Pierce Brosnan is just a really fine actor. And, um, you know, so, and Daniel Craig. I mean, so of the six men who have played James Bond, I really love watching the performances of four of them. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and I agree. by the way, by the way, yes, ma'am. for yes. the your audience, who is, for the witches in your audience, which is basically for all the people listening, <laughs> the uh, um, there is an occult connection to James Bond that many oh. people do not know about, and this is okay. just fascinating. Um, so there was this, there was a guy who wrote a book about the occult connection to James Bond. And you know how occultists, once they get like a bone in their jaw, they don't let go even when it's way too far gone. Like, yeah, first they say <laughs> this is connected and then they say this is connected and then they say everything is connected and you start to go, um, uh, well, <laughs> yeah, okay. So, so there is one book out there about James Bond and the occult, but it goes a little overboard. But, okay. um, so Queen Elizabeth I, as you know, John Dee, the great occultist um, and the creator uh-huh. or uh, discoverer of Enochian magic, um, yep. uh, Dr. John Dee 
was Queen Elizabeth's court astrologer. Mm-hmm. What is also Very not funny. necessarily as well known is that he was her spy. Oh, and really? Yes, and did in fact um, uh, travel Europe doing espionage on behalf of the Queen of England, and his code name was 007. Oh, wow. And his code name <laughs> for her, how he addressed her in his correspondence to her, was M. Yeah. Oh, really? Yes. Neat. Oh, doesn't, my gosh. Doesn't that make you go, huh? <laughs> it does. I mean, so Ian Fleming had known this when, it's, when it's, he was writing it? You kind of have to assume that he did because it's too much of a coincidence otherwise. But yeah, he was he was well educated and you know, he he liked to do research, but he also kind of would write these books on vacation. He would he would literally he um so how the the James Bond books started was um he was a lifelong confirmed bachelor and um, he got married and he was very, very stressed out by the fact that he was getting married. And so once a year he would go to Jamaica to his little uh, retreat, which he called Goldeneye. Um, (laughs) That's where that name comes from. And, Uh Um, he would write the next James, James Bond movie over the course of the summer. So what else did he, was that his only profession? What else did he do? Um, he was a professional writer. He also wrote Chitty, Chitty Bang Bang. No kidding. No See, I am just a font of useless information. No, it's good information, though. It's an interesting <laughs> creative process to have the same person who writes one write the other. You wouldn't think that. Yeah, he, he was you a know? writer and he um, he was uh, upper class and I, I don't recall um, I think he I think he was just a, a, a journalist. I don't know what all else he did. I don't remember. I should know. Now yes. I'm embarrassed that I don't know. Oh no, don't worry. It's not. It's not coming to mind. More I find my own questions out of left field. Sorry. <laughs> no, now but I want I more coffee. Ask... <laughs> oh gosh. Okay. <laughs> so I want to know what your favorite, 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 favorite James Bond movie is. Uh, from Russia with Love. From Russia with Love is the perfect movie. It it, it has adventure it is yeah it has mystery it has one of the most amazing casts it has bizarreness you know this is the yeah. one where lada lenya has a poisoned knife in her shoe this is the one uh-huh. where there's a chess master interrupted in a grandmaster tournament in order to report to specter this is this yeah. is the movie where we are introduced to blofeld seen as nothing but a pair of hands and a voice while he's petting his white cat and you don't even see his face for two more movies. Yeah. I mean, it, this is, this 
So it, it really um, sets Robert Shaw as the villain. Yeah. Um, Pedro Armendariz as an ally. This is just a wonderful, wonderful adventure that takes you to Istanbul, that takes you on a ride on the Orient Express. Mm-hmm. Um, it's got a very underground kind of feel. My favorite yeah. movies that travel are the movies that are, um, they don't, they show you things in the course of their travel that, that you couldn't see as a tourist or that you wouldn't necessarily know to try to see as a tourist, you know, something um, more organic. And yeah. I mean, this, this movie literally takes you into underground catacombs in, in Istanbul. So it's, it's oh, a wow, yeah. under, underground view. So it's, it's a very um, exotic in the best sense of the word movie. Yeah, and and it's funny and it's sort of expansive. It's just, I mean, to me, it's just everything, and it's sexy. This movie is so sexy, you know, <laughs> in, including you know the evil lesbian making the pass at the Bond girl who then runs to the arms of James Bond. This is good stuff. Yeah. <laughs> You know, I wanted to ask you, as far as these films go, especially when you're shooting things that are on location, these have to be huge budget productions, right? So who who was brave enough to, to produce this kind of a movie? I mean, because budgets, you know, if you look at, you know, pictures like Cleopatra that were like ridiculously over budget, but spectacles that have been appreciated for decades and decades like who came up with a budget that would be big enough to cover all of these on location scenes that's such an interesting question so the first james bond movie dr no was um was actually an independent movie it cost a million dollars total to produce right um there's a a very one of my well, one of my, it was, you know, it was a, it was a lot more in 1962 than it is today, but for sure. an adventure movie, uh-huh. you know, it was a pretty low budget movie. And in fact, one of the things that, that um, happened, this is, this is one of my favorite trivia stories, is that the, the set design is one of my favorite things about, about James Bond movies. And the set designer, Ken Adam, another, um, I believe, Oscar winner, he was famous for de- designing the war room scene in Dr. Strangelove, um, mm-hmm. really magnificent set designer and worked with Kubrick a lot. And he ran out of money and had one more oh. set to design. And there was no budget uh-huh. So there's an interrogation scene in Dr. No where it's this big, empty room. It's a huge room with a skylight, and light is coming in so that the, the bars, uh, the shadow from the skylight, are reflected like bars on the floor of this big, empty room, and, and the guy has to come into the door Professor Denton, he has to walk across this empty, empty room and sit in a tiny chair next to a tiny table with a lamp. 
And, mm-hmm. and, and so what Ken Adam did was he turned absolutely no money into one of the most extraordinary sets in the movie and so incredibly memorable. This is, get back to your question, because your, your question is really interesting. Um, it's been a problem really um, throughout the history of the Bond movies. There have been, you know, um, problem, budget problems and um, conflicts and lawsuits and all of that. That's why there was, uh, in part because, so the original Bond movies were made by a partnership with Harry Salzman and Cubby Broccoli. Salzman ended up in financial trouble and sold um, his interest in the Bond movies to United Artists. Mm -hmm. This was in the 70s. I don't have the year off the top of my head. So the Bond movies are owned 51% by the Broccoli family and 49% at that time by by United Artists and then sold to MGM and is now owned by Sony. Uh And these studios... So the Bond movies were one of the first movies to leverage product placement to make money in their movies. Starting with, I think, The Spy Who Loved Me may have been the first one where there were, like, visible awnings on buildings advertising products. It was either The Spy Who Loved Me or Moonraker. I I think it was The Spy Who Loved Me. Um, Uh and, And so the product placement figures heavily. In, in these movies. And now they, you know, you may have Bond drinking a beer where you could barely see the label, but the fact that he drinks that beer now allows Heineken to go and build an ad campaign that features a clip from Spectre, as, mm-hmm. as they did in, in 2015. So that's where wow. the money comes from and how they finance it. Where it becomes problematic is that it's what makes or breaks the studio for that year. That's why the forthcoming Bond movie, No Time to Die, was actually the first major movie postponed due to the pandemic. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Because, because the, you know, you know, Sony, Sony MGM lives or dies on the success of their Bond movies. That finances the rest of their movies that year. So they can't it really? afford. They can't afford oh. for these movies to fail, and they can't afford yeah. to lose the overseas audience. Right? China is right. vital for uh, for a James Bond movie. And back when this movie was originally postponed, nobody the, the virus was was not here yet, but it was in China, and they could, uh-huh. and people were already staying home and on lockdown orders in China, and you, they couldn't afford to lose that audience. Interesting. Yeah, well, I mean, I understand that. Is James Bond still as popular in the U.K. as it is here? Oh, it's huge. It's huge. Okay. That's these, these, these movies re- remain, you know, and again, I think they are t- cultural t- touchstones, and of course, um, the British are, are pound, proud of, of whatever influence they have left on sure. our culture. <laughs> was, that, was that rude enough? 
<laughs> yes, I love it. Because <laughs> that was pretty rude. <laughs> it's okay, I don't care. But um, true, but rude. You know, uh, I'm bad that way. Anyway, so the other thing about, well, and I will say just from a point of view of of just selling the book, it's one of the things that is so, uh, I love James Bond movies. You can tell. I'm passionate about them. I sit down and I watch them. I will will sit down and I will, you know, watch a trivia reel. I've watched like six or, you know, Six is a stupidly small number. Many documentaries about James Bond movies. I just really do love them. Um, but I would say that Bond fandom, you know, skews about five to five to one male. Most Bond sense. fans I mean, are I male. Get it. Yeah, I get it. It makes sense. You know, um, there you know, car, cars and guns and you know all the boy things. I think there there's mm-hmm. even if if even if you are a stereotypical woman who doesn't like all the boy things, I think there's a lot in the, in the Bond movies because I'm not really so much into the cars and the guns. I mean, a beautiful car is a beautiful car, but that's not my thing. I understand. But, I think these movies are, they're beautiful and they're exciting and they're sexy and the costumes are amazing and the travel is amazing. And I I just think there's so much to commend these movies, even if you don't care about cars and guns. But the fact is that, that these are very, these are seen as very male oriented and, and it is seen as a male passion. And, um, so I've been kind of with the, with the book gearing some of my advertising towards gifts, you know, for, for holiday shopping for men. Yeah. Be- because the thing that I don't have to put up with in my life is the heterosexual wife's uh, struggle to figure out what to buy her husband every year because there's just only so many ties and pairs of pajamas. Correct. <laughs> You know, I wanted to ask you something else about. Well, I wanted to see if you if you had any feelings about my view of of what James Bond is to me, because um, I've always looked at you know when he got married and then his wife is murdered. I after that point, I always looked at him as kind of this tragic hero. That you know he was he was kind of part Superman and. Don Quixote, but he had, you know, women throwing themselves at him, but nobody he, he would ever take as seriously as this, this love that he lost. And he was just out there being like the lone wolf, you know, women would come, women would go. He could never replace what's missing from his heart. Does any of that make sense to anybody? I think it all makes sense. I think you've got it exactly right. And I think that there's a level at which he's very self-aware that he is in a sense sacrificing his own happiness for the greater good. Yeah. You know, and that, and that the life that he doesn't get to have is because he's, you know, saving England or whatever, or the world. Um, And, 
and that there is that there is a, a a tragedy in that there is a you know sort of an inherent brokenheartedness to that. It's why yeah. you know he definitely you know drinks too heavily. He gambles. Yeah. He has lone wolf habits. He he eats very well. He's somebody who's living for the moment who doesn't expect to have a long life. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. I'm not insane. Cause no, that's always been no. my view from the point that that you know that his his wife goes. It's like, oh, oh no, he was happy. He was actually happy. Life seemed like it was coming together. But what would have happened if she hadn't if she hadn't gone? I mean, would he have still been capable of? I mean, it's almost like she had to die. Right. Otherwise, right. he could sure. or he couldn't be James Bond. You know, and the tragedy is what drives him on. I love stories like that. Well, I mean, I'm surprised you're not a bigger James Bond fan than you claim to be because you have, you you know, you have um, not just that you have insight into the character, but the fact that you sort of spent the mental energy having that insight into the character sort of speaks to, like, a real appreciation of, of what's being shown on screen. Well, having been, you know, I, I mean, I was born just before the first movie. So it's like, you know, I grew up with my father, like I had said earlier, with my father dragging me to these movies. And, you know, even when you're little and you don't really, you're not really paying attention, it sinks in what's going on over time. Because, my sure. father, I mean, my father was a huge, 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 huge James Bond, Steve McQueen, the real guy-guy stuff, you know what I mean? Yep, yep. So, I mean, so I was always being exposed to these these tragic men or these men with chips on their shoulders just because they had gotten a raw deal. And, no, James Bond definitely left an impression on me. I mean, I've, I've seen – I don't remember George Lazenby very well at all. Well, but that I was the remember. one movie where his wife died. Right, that's but I don't got remember married, him. Yeah. Right. right, but I don't remember He wasn't, him. in my opinion, memorable. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, so he, like, he didn't leave a lasting impression, but what, the, what happens in the movie did, because yeah. I will interchange who I like in roles if it's that far enough back in my brain. So to me, that was also you know, somebody else. It wasn't even George Lazenby. The fact that he wasn't one of my quote-unquote regular Bonds didn't even register. The story registered. But from, that, but from that point on, everybody who played him after that was, this, was a result of that tragedy. Yeah, so, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, and the movies will, will, will make subtle reference to that. Um, all the time, mm-hmm. there is like, for example, in the opening of um, For Your Eyes Only. Yeah. So he gets married on Her Majesty's Secret Service. That's 1969. For Your Eyes Only is Great 1985. Movie. Yeah. And I mean, so all those years later, that movie opens with him visiting his wife's grave. Heartbreaking. <laughs> It, no, it really, like, it really is his, yeah, it, 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 yeah, there is it an emotion. It hits a lot of my emotions. Yeah, it, it, it just, 
it gets me on a lot of levels. Like, I actually really appreciate the hell out of Daniel Craig. I really do. Um, but I haven't seen, like, the last James Bond movie. I don't even remember the title of it. This is how bad Spectre. I am. I apologize. Yeah, I never saw it. I probably need to go watch it. Well, you know, it's this is a movie that will drive fans crazy. Uh, the, the Some of what they did with the plot felt like, to me, like a, a fundamental misunderstanding of who James Bond is or what the James Bond movies are. I think that the James Bond movies are mythology. They are, you know, as we talk about, well, Superman is modern American mythology, for example, yeah. and we can, we can understand and appreciate that part of, of why Superman is important to us is, is yeah. because we need a mythic hero, that he, is, he comes to yep. Earth like a god, yep. you know, that this is, this is, um, this is what the, the superhero movies do for us. James Bond is also a mythic hero. And I think that um, the trend in, in movie writing now is to, is to humanize. And I think that they've kind of overdid it with Bond because you don't want you don't want Bonds, you, you want Bond to be humanized, but you don't want Bond to be small. You want Bond to stay mythic. And, yeah. and I think that they went too far in humanizing him to the point of demythologizing him. And I think that that will end up being a mistake. Um, anyway, that's, that's how I feel about it from how I feel about Spectre from the point of view of all 25 Bond movies. But from the point mm-hmm. of view of Spectre itself, it's a pretty damn yeah. good movie. <laughs> it's, okay, but from what you just said, do you think do you think it is, I mean, it sounds like your feeling is that it's doing a bit of a disservice to the character. Do you think that that's going to impact the new movie? The, the new movie is being marketed, as far as I can see from, from the previews, as a direct sequel. Mm-hmm. They're bringing back, oh. um, they're, they're, they've got Blofeld back as a recurring character played by Christoph Waltz. I think I'm mispronouncing his name. Waltz? 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 Christoph, I, I promised myself that one of the things that I would learn, yeah, no, it's Christoph Waltz. I promised myself okay. that one of the things that I had to be good at if I was going to write a book about James Bond was pronouncing this guy's name. But Christoph Waltz, okay. who, you know, from from uh, Inglorious Bastards, he won the he won the Oscar yeah. for Inglorious Bastards. He plays Blofeld now, and um, uh, they've brought him back for No Time to Die, and they've also brought back. Uh, Leah Seydoux, who played Madeline in, in Spectre for No Time to Die. So it does look very much like a direct sequel. Interesting. Which, you know, again, too much continuity in a Bond movie is not necessarily a good thing because then what happens? Like, this is, this is um, 
all the best money is on that this is this is Daniel Craig's last Bond movie. I've heard people go, well, you don't know that. Yeah, we kind of do. I think 53 at this point, he gets more and more injured on every Bond movie. You know what happens at our age. You don't recover from injuries as fast as you used to. No matter how good sure, yeah. you're in, it's a little harder, yeah. you know, to, to you're laid up longer. And mm-hmm. um, he's had some pretty serious injuries that have impacted production and therefore impacted costs. Let's face it, um, right on the pay, on insurance his two movies. Yes, yeah, insurance skyrockets, and there comes a point where you're almost uninsurable. I think at a certain point, you know, it's oh, hard yeah. to get that written into the budget. So yeah, I mean, it sounds like they would be doing. Unfortunately, the wise thing by looking for a replacement, which kind of leads me to my next question, obviously. I think it's uh, – okay, so I think it's – first of all, I think they're going to choose a relative unknown, which is what they did with Daniel really? Craig, and it worked out. Okay. Right. So here's the thing. So first of all, they like continuity. They don't like change. So leaving the series is going to be Craig's decision, not – um, not Ian Productions decision. But I think okay. that Craig will not come back. He's too old. He's getting beat up. His career is taking off. There's going to be a sequel to Knives Out. He, he, yeah. It, it, it's, it's, it's a whirlwind. You know, he got married. I, I mean, he's, he's ready to not be that guy anymore. <laughs> it sounds like it, yeah. So I think that the safe money is I, I would give anybody two to one odds that this is this is Craig's last movie as James Bond. Okay. Sorry, not his last movie. Okay. Obviously. Right. Obviously. And 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 this is why I say that like having too much continuity movies in the, is a bad in the movies is is not necessarily a good thing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Because he was married in 1969. That was what mm-hmm. the year Daniel Craig was born. After a while, the con- if, you, if you're too married to the continuity, if you make it human instead yeah. of mythic, um, uh-huh. it you can't make sense. So, like let's let's love let's love James Bond as our mythic hero and not have because the next guy is going to come in, he's going to be in the sweet spot of age for hiring a new James Bond. They want him to be able to make, you know, three to five movies. The movies are yeah. further apart than they used to be because they're more complicated to make than they used to be. That means mm-hmm. the sweet spot is they're going to find an actor who is between 28 and 36 years old. Makes sense. That's, that's about right. And so people who say Idris Elba, Idris Elba is the yes. same age as Daniel Craig. I didn't know what? that. <laughs> Why would they do that? They wouldn't. Why would okay. They... Yeah. Makes, yeah, that doesn't make sense. I think You're that right. they're they're I think they're very conservative and I think it's gonna be another white guy. But you know, um I'm not yeah. gonna stand with um the the racists among Bond fans and say that, that it is you know, Bond is quintessentially English. So if you try right. to tell me that that means that he must be white, 
you're saying that whiteness is quintessentially English and the, the vast number of British citizens who are non-white aren't what, English? Right. You know, of course. I, it doesn't make sense. Yeah. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna engage with that in any kind of a of of a serious way because I'm not going to to engage with the parts of it that are obviously racist. But people's ideas about who's gonna be bond are ludicrous. What people do is they start throwing out the name of every handsome British actor they can think of. Yeah. And it's not how it works. And it's not all that it takes to do the part. And Daniel Craig was a relative unknown when they cast him. Honestly, so was Sean Connery. You know, George Lazenby was a complete unknown. He'd literally never done a movie. Um, Really? He'd done a commercial. (laughs) Wow. Oh my gosh. But I guess, you know, they're looking for a type, you know, you're, you're, you, you see something as someone who is, who's a filmmaker and I guess it has to, there has to be a a quarter of of resonance to what you're trying to accomplish. And nobody is going to go see the Bond movies because a star is in them. People are going to see the Bond movies because they're Bond movies. And honestly, an unknown is a draw. An unknown is, who's this guy? Let's go see. Yeah, is he going to, what's he going to bring to this role? Is he going to mess it up or is he going to make it even better? I can see that argument from an unknown. When you bring in somebody who is known, you run into preconceived notions of what this person plays and who this person can be, unless they're a really fantastic actor you know, and can make you forget that you're looking at someone who's done other roles, which isn't necessarily an easy thing to do. Right. And, but they want more of the stamp of ownership on this guy. I mean, you know, Craig has made numerous movies in the years that he's been Bond. And honestly, he, he made numerous movies. Um, I, I, before that I saw, um, when Casino Royale was announced, he was announced as the new Bond, I sort of rented everything I could find with him in it because I wanted to feel for who this guy was. He got a, quite a good range. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I must have rented six or so movies or wow. rented five and seen <laughs> one in the theater. Um, well, you know, everybody needs a hobby. <laughs> hey. So he was actually, you know, and people went nuts over, oh, he's blonde. He is blonde, but he is not as blonde as he was on that first press conference where he had actually colored his hair for a role. Uh-huh. Um, but uh-huh. people didn't know that, and he doesn't bother telling people that because he, he cannot be bothered without, with people being jerks. He just he has got a terrible attitude, which is one of the great things about him. Um, really? No, he is, he is such a bitch. <laughs> Okay, welcome to the team. <laughs> right? No, he's great. It's, it's the stuff that comes out of his mouth. It's great. Um, but I think that um, 
you know, them casting an unknown also gives them a sort of an ownership over this guy's image. They care very much about image over it in production. They really do. Yeah. They they don't want somebody who's going to um, make them look like idiots, basically. Well, they, you know, as you pointed out, the budget on these things is massive. There's a lot yeah. of people's careers riding on each one of them. Um, they don't want to make stupid mistakes. I, I think that conservatism that. is part of, of what sometimes, you know, makes the movies not as good as they could be, you know, because they're too conservative. But they never ask me. <laughs> I know. <laughs> and they should ask you. But, I know I mean, so I much. Also get, I know. But, I, but you know what? I do understand when you have a brand and it's a really well-known brand, it gets scary to step out of a certain zone. And you're, you get afraid of experimentation because you don't want to alienate the fans you've had. But right. you also you don't, don't want, want to alienate new fans. You always need new fans. You always need yeah. the new fans. It's, the, it's why, like, fans so rarely get their wish in any of the franchises because the fans are never enough to sell any movie. That's why Trekkies don't get what, you know, what we want in, in, in Trek movies, you know, and, and why they do stupid things with Trek movies that any, you know, Trek fan could have told them was a mistake because they, they are trying to expand the audience. They're trying to make it um, bigger and better than the last movie. Yeah, as a Trekkie myself, think you and I could kill a solid hour talking about Trek. We may need to do that. <laughs> sure, because your your audience doesn't care if you talk about witchcraft. But well, I, they I care. I I, I uh, no, I'm teasing you. Um, I gave <laughs> you I gave you witchcraft material for James Bond, and you didn't know I could do that. I didn't, so I'm impressed. <laughs> I no, was I prepared. Think, I, I think we're more than just being witches. That's the whole thing. I mean, that's why I encourage folks to come on and, yeah, okay, we can talk about witchcraft books all day. That's great. But you're also a person, and I like the person aspect. You know what I mean? Well, so, and, and then there are, there are hobbies that, that skew towards, like, a witchcraft audience. Like, for, you know, I remember uh, an occultist I know – um, who I won't name because he's a little bit well-known, really teasing me about the James Bond stuff. Like, where does that come from? And I, how is it more, how is it less connected to, occult, to, to witchcraft or to paganism than Lovecraft? Okay, All other right. than the fact that Lovecraft uses the word occult in it, it has nothing to do with what we do. Right. But for some reason, that's a more acceptable, more commonplace, or red fairs, right? That's a more right. acceptable hobby uh, uh, among pagans. Why? It has literally nothing to do with what we do. It just sort of seems somehow more, I don't even know, more what? Because it's old, because it's medieval. And maybe the word medieval in and of itself is enough for people. I don't know. 
But my point about it is we're whole people and we're not just the craft and we're not just Wiccan and we're not just pagan and we're not just fill in the blank. And that's why when you were like, do you, do you want, really want to do this? And I'm like, uh, yeah, because I get to do what I want. <laughs> that's what happens when you have your own show. You get to decide whatever you want to talk about. So, yeah, I'm, you know, and, and I think the people who listen to the show appreciate you for what you've done in, in witchcraft. But I think it's also nice to see other aspects of people. Listen, I've had folks on, we talk about football for an hour if that's what they want to do. This is, but, this would not be me. <laughs> Just in case. Well, well, it wouldn't necessarily be me either, but you know, when, when you take a, a, a person who is known for one thing, I think it's really cool when you can highlight other aspects of who they are. So, I, I mean, I, I love, and, and, and I'll tell you, it's, it's such a, it's such a, um, a joy for me because, you know, how do I put this? When I'm writing about occultism, it's serious. You know what I mean? It matters. It, it has an impact sure. into the world and in, in the way that I understand the world. It's about people's religion. This is important stuff, yeah. you know? Yeah. And then, so then... When I write about movies or television, when I do, when I write about pop culture, it's just easy. It's just low stress. It's just for fun. I have no illusions about it changing the world. And that gives me, as a writer, an enormous yeah. freedom that I don't otherwise have. <laughs> right. And, and that's just that's a great joy for me. Yeah. And I love that you have great joy in it, and I want to celebrate that. I, you know, I mean, my guest yesterday is a musician in addition to being an astrologer. And I'm like, talk about the music. It's, it's, you're not just an astrologer. You are more than one thing. We are all more than one thing, and I want people to have that freedom when they come on to talk about the other aspects of things that they're into, because we're not just one thing. So right. I, I success that you said yes. And, and that's one thing that, let's listen, that's one thing that the pandemic has taught us. We have to have other resources. We have to be able to dig into other spots in ourselves. Yeah. You know, for sustenance, right? I mean, this, I so, agree. so the, the Ultimate James Bond fan book was originally published in 2006. It covered the movies from Dr. No to Die Another Day. And then yeah. um, I had a terrible relationship with that publisher. And then, yeah. um, including somebody in another podcast asked me, how well did that book do originally? I have no idea because the publisher was lying to me left, right, and center. It must have done pretty well because at one point, despite the fact they treated me like shit, um, he asked me if I wanted to do an updated version. And I, I think that he was such a con man that he imagined that I didn't know how badly he was treating me. You know, wow. but I'm not stupid. I'm just pretty. Right. <laughs> you know, so that confuses you. But, um, you know, then right around the time that No Time to Die was postponed, I found out that this publisher had gone out of business. And therefore, the copyright of the book reverted to me. 
So right. I turned it into the book I had always wanted it to be that it had never been. Now, a normal cool. new edition of a book, you slap a few chapters on the end to get it up to date, you write a new introduction, yeah. and you maybe you do yeah. a new cover, maybe you don't. That's yeah. a normal updated edition. That is not this book. This book, okay. I, had, I spent the pandemic rewriting every page of this book. So wow. it's full of lists, like Bond girls and, you know, best, best and worst Bond girls, best and worst villains, best and worst car chases, best and worst uh, um, henchmen. Um, yeah. You know, and then data lists, all the cars, all the locations, all the, you know, also every, all the songs, every, all the Oscar winners. Lots and yeah. lots of trivia, lots and lots of opinion. Every single list in the book was, is up to date and includes okay. we're available, we are released yeah. information. We are down to like 60, 90, 90 to 120 seconds. When can folks get the book? It's available now. It's available on Amazon. It's available um, in, on bookshop.org if you don't want to go to Amazon. It's available. Um, there's, a, there's a store called MZS World, which special M, Mary Z, Zebra S, Sam, MZS World. Um, specializes in selling autographed copies of film and television books. Neat. There's many, many wonderful books you can get there, including mine, autographed. Excellent. So cool. it's available everywhere. It is a coffee table-sized book. This thing will go thunk when it hits the table. It's huge. It's over 500 pages, yeah. and you will love it. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I will love it. I'm going to have to go get it now. I'm sorry. <laughs> There goes your budget. Don't it's be. actually not even no, it's yeah, not even probably. a pricey book. It's not even a high priced book for what it is. It's a it's a wonderful gift book. I designed it as a gift book. I worked with a well known artist on the cover. I'm very proud of the beautiful, beautiful cover he created for me. That is um, wonderful. I'm really excited to see it. Yeah, and you can see the that cover on Amazon. It's I think it's a it's an exquisite work of art. Okay. Well, that sounds fantastic. Um, so, Deborah, can folks still get you at www.debralip.com? Debralip.com. Absolutely. Find me there. I'm and uh, and contact information. I have an author page on Facebook. I'm really easy to find. She really I'm is kind of friendly, <laughs> despite everything. She's very friendly. No, you are very friendly. Stop. <laughs> Deborah Lip, you are a trip, and I love you, and I'm so glad you you agreed to come and spend some time with me. Oh, I can't thank you so enough. Much fun. This is always fun. Thank you so much. Can we can we do this again? Not so As, distantly. Sure. <laughs> sure. As, sure. Well, someday things will be distant. That's true too. All right. Thank you again. I will talk to you soon. Um, everybody, I'll be back at one o'clock with Julia Helena Haddis, and we're going to discuss witchcraft cocktails, which is going to be oh, cool. fun. Yule's coming up, y'all. We're going to have a good time with that. All right, everybody, see you in a bit. Have a great day. Bye bye. Take care. Bye. <laughs>